Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I'm your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim. And, uh, are you there? Are you listening? I hope so, because I talk a lot and really like the idea of people listening to what I might have to say. Even if half of it is really just, hey, go to my website and give me money to make movies. Which, come to think of it, it's more than half, isn't it? It's more like three quarters, right? That's all right. Speaking of which, we'll just jump right into it. Right now, officially, I am currently making two films. Guns of the Apocalypse, which you know about, and uh, Queen of Snakes, which I announced last month, and we are now taking contributor credits for. Literally the day after this audio cast is released, we will begin a principal photography of Guns of the Apocalypse. We did a final costume fitting this evening for Tyler Haynes, who's playing the main character, and he looks super cool. We came up with a, a cool look. I'm just, I'm just excited to get started on this. You know, I always get kind of, I always, I always go through this thing before I start. You know, I've got a script and I've got people in place. I got things together, you know, doing the pre-production stuff. And there's always a part of me that before we start filming, I start freaking out a little bit, worried that it's not going to happen, but, uh, we're that close and it's happening and it's going to be cool. Uh, I've mapped out the shoot. It's going to be different than anything else I've done, which, um, scares me a little bit, but I'm also excited by it's like with every film, with every project I undertake, as long as in my head, as long as I'm trying some new stuff, I'm moving in the right direction. I may sound a little less energetic than I normally am, and that's, I'm just going to say, I think I'm fighting a little something. You know, there's there's some seasonal stuff going around, uh, flus and other viruses. I think I may have picked up one. About a week and a half ago, I did a screening of The Giant Spider at the Alamo Draft House in Richardson, Texas, uh, which was great fun, and we had an amazing crowd. But as I tried to get back to Minnesota... There was a huge snowstorm that took place on the day I was supposed to fly back here, and I kind of got stranded for another night. And both those flights were very early in the morning. Now, most of you are probably aware that I am a hardcore night owl. So having a very early flight, and not early enough that I could just stay up. It was more like a 6.30 a.m., which is just a little too late for me to stay up, or early, depending on your perspective. So I had to instead go to bed early, you know, in a hotel where I rarely sleep well anyway, and had to get up super early to go down to the airport, which meant getting up at like three in the morning, which is insane because I usually don't even go to bed until four or five in the morning, but to have to get up is, is weird and be at the airport and then have the plane delayed and delayed. And finally I just made a decision I was going to stay. So I stayed another day and then having to do it basically again, that trip kind of messed with my regular schedule and it was a bit of an ordeal to get back home that's okay i mean it's the time of year it's flu season and i may have picked up some of it <laughs> which sucks or i may just still be worn out because honestly i have not been able to get my regular sleep schedule back on track ever since <sighs> i know eventually i will it's just been a little rough and you know how it is. I'm sure you do, right? You get off your, your game. You get off your routine. And sometimes you get far enough off your routine, it can take a while to reestablish it. 
it's it's sometimes hard for me just to even sleep at all because I'm my mind is constantly running. I'm thinking of things and and stressing about little stuff. Did I remember to order that? Did I remember to do this? Did I remember to do that so that we can start filming? Did I remember to send this to this person, this, that, and the other thing? And so it gets a little crazy. But that's the nature of this particular beast that I attempt to tame every year. See, I'm so out of it. I don't even know. It. I'm not making sense. So, Guns of the Apocalypse. We're starting filming on that. Please contribute to it. Go to gunsoftheapocalypse.com or just sayeuphoria.com and find it and contribute. Otherwise, Queen of Snakes or both. Pre-production on Queen of Snakes is moving forward. Guns of the Apocalypse, we're getting all our stuff together and we're... I'm, I'm writing scripts for the Phantom Files. I told you I was going to be doing the Phantom Files this year and it is going to happen. I'm going to give you a cryptic hint about one of the scripts I'm writing for Volume 1 of the Phantom Files. I will say this, if you are a long-time Mimiverse fan or a hardcore one who knows all the movies, one of the things I'm writing will excite you in a way that you probably haven't been before when it comes to Mimiverse-related things. That's as cryptic as I'm going to get. I'm not going to give you any more information than that other than one of the Phantom File scripts will make a lot of people, especially going back to the fans of even the monster of Phantom Lake, or it came from another world, it will make you folks very happy. So yeah, we're making movies. We're doing lots of Mimiverse-related stuff. And it's an adjustment to the level of stuff I'm doing. This is new. Going from making the one movie to making two, plus working on Wasp, the, the Texas Mimiverse movie, as I called it, uh, that's coming together. I'm, I'm working on a, a, another film that I want to make later in the year. I mean, it's just lots of cool stuff is happening. And I'm fighting, you know, some sort of something, and my sleep schedule's all messed up. So either I'm going to end up losing it, hopefully that's not the case, or I'll just adjust and, and we'll end up with some quality Mimiverse entertainment for you to enjoy. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the quality Mimiverse-related entertainment that you enjoy is not possible without contributions from fine folks just like yourself. If you go to SaintEuphoria.com, you can currently contribute and get your name in the credits of Queen of Snakes or Guns of the Apocalypse. And if you like what I do, please contribute. You get stuff. You get your name in the credits. It's cool. Be cool. Be on the cool side. Be with the cool people. All the cool people are doing it. And that's true. They all really are. So, honestly, that's that's what's happening right now in the Mimiverse, is that I'm making a lot of stuff, and I'm very, very busy as a result. And I'm, of course, begging you to give me money to make more. Because I have no shame. Because I love what I do and I want to keep doing it. As of this date, all 12 Mimiverse films plus the Monster Phantom Like the Musical are now available for your viewing pleasure on Amazon Prime. You know, there's the free with Prime stuff that you can watch on Amazon Prime. All of my films are now available on that platform. Honestly, 
I'm happy that I made that change. I was a little skittish about it because it kind of felt like I was just giving it away. And to a certain extent, I kind of am. However, since I made that change, I have seen a remarkable jump in the amount of traffic my website has received, the number of likes on Facebook, which honestly makes it worth it because I kind of feel like it's, it's bringing in a whole new audience of people. And, and this is one of my favorite things about it, since I put the films on Amazon Prime and made them available to all Amazon Prime subscribers, the number of positive reviews of all my films on Amazon has jumped considerably. I used to often read reviews of my films from Amazon. A lot of them were bad, but funny bad, poorly written bad. Since putting them on Amazon Prime, not only are some of the, what's a good term, less well-loved films of the Mimiverse have gotten a lot more eyeballs and as a result, their ratings have all more or less improved. But I'm noticing just more positive reviews. And I think I figured out perhaps the psychology of why. And I am no psychologist, so I may be completely wrong, but I'm conjecturing that. The reasoning behind having more negative reviews than not is because before they were available for Amazon Prime subscribers, which is a large number of people. The only folks who would often review them were people who had bought them on Amazon, you know, the DVDs. Because these folks had spent money and then were dissatisfied, and believe me, there are still plenty of those folks, wanted to vent their anger. So they took to Amazon and wrote poorly worded, poorly spelled reviews. And they were honest. It's how they felt. Good for you, buddy. Sorry I disappointed you so. I'm not really sorry, but thanks for your time. Now, though, I think because there is this perception that you are getting these movies for free, which you're not because you're paying a yearly fee to have access to this stuff, but it feels like you're getting it free. Now we're seeing more positive reviews because maybe there's that psychological angle of people not being pissed that they spent money on something and didn't like it. They're maybe checking something out and were pleasantly surprised by it. And we're like, I'm going to let the world know that I was pleasantly surprised by this. I mean, just recently, we got a review of the giant spider that I can see was someone who, who watched it on Amazon Video. And, you know, it's a great 50s monster movie. Uh, and another one that, you know, is five stars and uh, another one that's uh, four stars, hilarious and well done, if you get it. And then, of course, you have someone else who's like, one star, getting tired of paying Amazon to watch someone's home movie that belong on YouTube not. See, this is the thing. What is it with the bad reviews always having poor grammar and spelling? What's up with that? Anyway, I digress. So I'm starting to just see a lot more positive reviews. Uh, and two, just more reviews in general of some of the films that we're not getting any like Demon with the Atomic Brain. Although, today, we got our first one-star review of Demon with the Atomic Brain on Amazon.com. And the guy just didn't like it. And then explained why. Which was nice instead of, this movie is the dumb, I hate it, and spelled everything wrong. 
The funny thing is, is that I can go in and look at each of these people and what they've reviewed. And this guy, all his reviews are either movies that he mostly did not like and gave one star to, and then reviews of canned food items. Like he ordered apparently some bumblebee tuna and he was not happy. He thought it was too mushy. I, I, see, I just, okay, okay. So Amazon Prime, you can watch all the movies of the Mimiverse on Amazon Prime. You know what? I have an idea. I want you to watch the films of the Mimiverse on Amazon Prime. And I want you to tell four other people you know to do the same. I would love to see a spike over the next week after the release of this. Watch them yourself. Tell four or five people you know to check them out as well and see if we can't, in the next seven days, see a noticeable bump in the number of watchers. That'd be, be kind of a fun experiment to see if it uh, makes a difference. Either way, thank you guys for checking out my stuff. Thank you guys for sharing. Thank you guys for being fans. Thank you for contributing. If you haven't already, you, you should do it. <laughs> All right, I'll stop for now. Speaking of now, it's time to send it over to Derek Cook of Monster Kid Radio. He's got another pasta primer. He's produced these for the last couple episodes of uh, the Mimiverse Monthly. They're very informative and very well done because you know what? Derek Cook is one of the best podcasters in the business right now. No lie, hands down. Monster Kid Radio, monsterkidradio.net, is by far the best podcast around. Seriously. Uh, I'm always talking it up because to me, it's amazing that Derek likes my movies and has been such a supporter of the Mimiverse. And I want to return that favor. I would love it if you guys would check it out. The show is very well produced. It's very well researched. It's very informative and very entertaining. After the pasta primer, we have another edition of the Kansas City Crypt with Rich Chamberlain. And then when we come back after that, we'll have chapter 11 of For Your Ice Only, the Beef McCormick curling spy novel. I'm currently releasing to you one chapter at a time. Exciting stuff happening there, so check that out. And then, of course, we'll close the show with another joke from Dr. Bob Tesla of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob, the official horror host of the Mimiverse. For now, I'm going to turn it over to Derek. Take it away, Mr. Cook. In the last two episodes of the Pasta Primer here on the Mimiverse Audio Podcast, I've talked about my own background in history a little bit when it comes to spaghetti westerns, but I mentioned last time that I'm not the only monster kid that's into this kind of stuff. I've got a friend who's been on Monster Kid Radio quite a bit. In fact, as of this recording, we just got done recording an episode of MKR, and I thought, you know, let's take a few minutes to talk with Frank Schildener, an author who most monster kids know as a man behind books like The Devil Plague of Naples, which is coming out in June, or The Quest of Frankenstein. I mean, he's a monster kid through and through, but he also contributed to a 2016 collection called Rick Lay's... Did I say that right, Lay's? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Rick Lay's Major Sabbath. It's three stories, and they're all... Well, you know what? I'm just going to tell you the first three words... Uh, on the Amazon page for this book are Manhunters and Spaghetti Westerns. It's exactly what it is. Frank, t- 
tell me about your background with spaghetti westerns. Well, I grew up in a household that loved movies. I'm really lucky that way. And my dad liked westerns. And he showed me some of the early ones, the Tom Mixes, the Roy Rogers, and the like. And then one day he put on a movie that changed my view of westerns. Because I used to just, okay, you know, I'd watch them, you know, John Wayne and all that. But he then put on A Fistful of Dollars. And all of a sudden I'm seeing this whole different universe. And that was the Euro or Spaghetti Western element of it. And this was where I started following the Spaghetti Westerns and trying to find as many of them as I can in the days before, you know, we had books on the subject or and the like. And video stores had some, and it was a very on and off thing. Thanks to the internet, this has changed. I've seen a couple of hundred, I think, at this point. So I love the Spaghetti Western because... As Rick Lay, who is probably one of the smartest human beings I know, said, it takes the theme out of probably, I think, the influence of this, as he said, is from the TV show Half Gun Will Travel, the paladin character traveling around. He does good, but he's doing it for money. And that's where the man with no name comes from in the trilogy. Mm -hmm. And I found that fascinating to see where there's this different ethic where the characters are not motivated just for good. They're motivated for good and cash and sometimes not even for good. Right. (laughs) You know, fascinating themes that followed in the spaghetti Western universes that kind of came out of that. And it created some of the more interesting heroes or semi-heroes of the time. I mean, I mentioned the man with no name, though he did have names in those movies, by the way. Right, right. (laughs) That's what's so funny. It's like, man with no name, they called him Blanco through the whole movie. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, like, really? Where are we going with this? It also created Sabata, Uh uh, which was played by the great Lee Van Cleef, and I'll come back to that in a sec, and Sartana. Uh, played by two actors uh, in the original series. And, of course, Django, played by Franco Nero, who many people know, in two movies, and then it was made... uh, Oh, boy. Yeah. uh, Well, (laughs) you know. Uh, There is a good part of that. Franco Nero actually makes a brief cameo in it, and that alone makes the movie for me. It had some good elements. What what I was referring to, though, is that Django ended up being used over and over and over again in so many other movies that... You know, the, officially, there's well, been, actually, you know, most of those movies he wasn't. No, in. he wasn't in any of them. Officially, there's only like yeah, two. It was like the Hercules movies, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's only like two official Django movies, and then the rest either had Django added to the title just because it sold, or they would bring in somebody else and say, oh, "Let's call him Django once and call it that." So yeah, well, they, they did that to Sartana too. Oh, Sartana and Santana, yeah. yeah, they did that a bunch of times. Now, Major Sabbath, which you mentioned earlier, is created by Rick Lay, who I just mentioned. Rick is a writer and historian and article expert and he just knows more about anything in the world than anybody he appears regularly on the lovecraft easy uh, e-podcast there he is just one of the smartest human beings i ever met and he created this spaghetti western universe out of probably two three hundred spaghetti westerns he'd seen over the years and he decided to have it produced as a book series through Airship 27, one of my publishers. 
And the way he got me in was he said, well, there's a martial art one, and I know you love martial arts. And there was. It was called Shanghai Joe. Okay. It was, it was kind of like, well, it, you've seen the Kung Fu series, uh, Kwai Chang Kane and all that? Right, right. Okay. Imagine a bad-tempered Kwai Chang Kane. Okay. <laughs> that's, kind, that's kind of the best way, where Kwai Chang Kane would turn the other cheek, Shanghai Joe would rip your eyeball out. You know, that's, that's the kind of way this worked. <laughs> it had Klaus Kinski in it, though, so he was one of the bad guys in it. So there was, there was fun stuff in it. And um, he got me to write a story, and I, got, and I actually wrote a second one recently that I presented for the next volume. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And it's a uh, – uh, he brought up in his – he has these notes in the back of the book that I encourage everybody to read uh, that tells of these movies and books and characters that I've never even heard of or some I heard of and saw you know, maybe in 1987 – <laughs> it's like unbelievable. He brought out so much, but he's so smart. Rick is one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. And he just, it, it always comes down to when Rick tells me, I think you're wrong about that 99 out of 100 times. He's 100% right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's how I always say. But usually what I do with Rick, just as a funny little aside, is um, I throw in my own craziness in there. And Rick is the one person who will pick it out of the book and say, what did you mean about this? This isn't a group I've ever heard of. I looked everywhere. I was like, Rick, I just came up with that off the top of my head. He said, it had to be. Because I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> it's like I get you once you know, every book. It's like I throw in, like, you know, I, I threw in, I'm not joking. This was something I threw in, The Secret Masters of Under Detroit. Oh. I don't know what that is. Okay. I don't know what that is. I just threw it in there. I just threw it in there, and I saw Rick at Pulp Fest a bunch of years ago, and it had just come out like two, three months before that, this book. And he comes up to me, he's saying, hi, how you doing? And says, Secret Masters of Under Detroit. Where'd you get that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Rick, you're the only person who's ever asked me, and just from the tip of my brain. And he's like, I knew it didn't exist. I looked everywhere. <laughs> So the Spaghetti Westerns are fascinating because if you look at their history, it came out of the same history as ours. And really, they started to be um, Westerns in Italy at the late 19th century. And for most of the time up into the 64, when the first Leone story came out, they were always the um, good versus evil, the white hat, black hat kind of thing. Right. You know, the very Roy Rogers, Tom Mix. And it all changed entirely when Sergio Leone created his own little universe. And everything went from there. And those movies are just fascinating because of it. The, the history of the Spaghetti Western is is so, I mean, like you said, fascinating. And, you know, I talked a little bit about this in, in the first episode of the Pasta Primer, you know, the, the background of Westerns and that Westerns were being filmed in Italy up until this point. But, yeah, when the Man With No Name series and a few other films came about, it really became its own thing, its own machine. And there are so many stark differences between the Spaghetti Western and the traditional Hollywood Western before that. It's not a John Wayne movie. It's not a Roy Rogers story. These characters, 
their their allegiances are so back and forth. It's not a black and white type of story. I mean, there are so many shades of gray in this thing, in these things that it, it makes for some really interesting anti-heroes and and maybe even anti-villains if that's a thing. You really have an indirect line to the end goal in these films. Sometimes they go all over the place before they get to where they're they're trying to go, and sometimes they don't they don't even go where they started, and. I just I found I find the the subgenre so interesting because it's it's just an interesting take on that morality tale that you get with the westerns and there's just something about them. I mean, I, I discovered them like I said in a previous Pasa Primer, kind of begrudgingly. I was not a fan of westerns and, and kind of dismissed them uh, up until the mid '90s. And then when I finally started getting into them, I was like, wow, this this is something I missed out on, and I'm so glad I gave them a shot. You mentioned the internet. We are now in a day and age where we can stream hundreds of them legally through like Amazon Prime. There are so many Westerns oh, yeah. out there with so many different – sometimes they have alternate titles and, and I have come across one or two. The titles are not coming to my brain right now because it's still early for me. But uh, there are a couple out there that are on Amazon more than once under each individual title. So, I mean, there, there's so many out there that listeners can enjoy them. When you wrote your story for uh, the Major Sabbath collection, was there an intention to bring that character back for future things? I mean, is this this was the first time you, you wrote or published something in this subgenre, right? First time I ever wrote a Western, period. Oh, wow. I'd never written a Western before. I never even imagined it, but he found a means of getting me involved in it, and it worked. And the Major Sabbath character is totally Rick's idea. He created it a while back through um, a book series from the United States and France through Black Coat Press called Tales of the Shadow Men. He created his own version of this character, and he did some minor alterations before it became an Airship 27 character. It's very much based on one of the great Lee Van Cleef characters, Colonel Mortimer, from For a Few Dollars More, Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood movie, the second in the Dollar Trilogy, mm -hmm. where this heroic older character it has an adventure with the younger, uh, more venal uh, Clint Eastwood character, who's still pretty spectacular in his own right. And they get involved in this very big adventure that, as you, you even mentioned it earlier, they, it was the, the twists and turns where they were going with it were just unexpected when you first see it. And it's very well made because of it. The way he got me in, as I said, was Shanghai Joe, but I wrote a second one that didn't involve Shanghai Joe. I actually just involved myself with other characters for the fun of it. And I never really considered even trying a Western, but then... The funny thing happened. I actually got asked to write the Lone Ranger. Uh, what? In a short, the Lone Ranger in a short story collection that's coming from Moonstone. I had no idea, man. This is news to me. It's coming from Moonstone. It's the Lone Ranger collection. Uh, I'm in it. Matthew Baugh, um, my very good friend, Win Scott Eckert are, are in it. A bunch of other writers, and I wrote an adventure with the Lone Ranger and Tonto. So I guess I can do westerns. <laughs> wow, I I had no idea. Well, congrats on that. That's thank that's you. That's pretty amazing. Uh, so breaking news for me, anyway. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of like you know I've had luck with writing this character or that. I've never written something that really is like a, a legend, and this is an ultimate legend. This would have been my late dad's favorite of all my stories because. It involved his favorite Western hero, the Lone Ranger. That's 
pretty special. That's a big deal, Frank. Um, you know, that's that's pretty amazing. The Lone Ranger, while certainly not a spaghetti western character. I mean, the Lone Ranger no. traditionally, pure hero. yeah, pure hero. And and I know over the years, I think was a dynamite that put out a comic book series based yes. on the Lone Ranger. Dynamite. I know over the years there's been some attempts to kind of gritty him up a little bit. So I'm curious to see what your takes going to be on on the character. Well, I will tell you, I really don't believe in grittying up the Lone Ranger. He's one of those characters who should stay as he is. That's one of my big things about the attempts to make Superman into a sort of grittier character. No, he's Superman. He stays Superman. Some things can stay as they are and don't need to be the same, while other things can be done to make the story more interesting. I did a... Uh, an enjoyable adventure for me for the Lone Ranger and Tonto, at least in my point of view. It it seemed to have passed uh, Matthew Baugh's scrutiny, and he's a tough audience. He's an editor himself and great writer. Uh, he's in Shadow Men a lot too. He's written some great stuff. I think he wrote Captain Kronos in one of his short stories. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, yeah, I believe in one of the early ones. I'd have to check, but I think he did. That's the Tales of the Shadow Men series of books, which are yes. up to volume fourteen now, I believe. Volume fourteen came out in December. They come out. Every Every December, um, that was the first thing I was ever published, and I believe I was the fifth one I was first okay. published, and I'm in every year since then. I always write a short story in it for every year, and I, I think my short stories are getting better because I'm learning how to write better. Oh, I mean, we all kind of grow, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely, and I have editors who are very honest. They'll tell me, you know what? This doesn't work. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, as, as, you know, to kind of bring it back to monster movies, do you see similarities between uh, the Western or the Spaghetti Western and the traditional monster rally or monster movie from the 50s? Oh, definitely. Because by the time the golden age of monsters passed, people started experimenting with form. And making it, you know, trying to see where they could take the monsters, which brought in the sort of accidental monsters of the 60s. The, you know, the the giants uh, that were, you know, by radiation and things like that. Started to bring in um, a kind of, they're not necessarily the evilest uh, out there. Some things are not their choices. They have other motivations. And that's kind of where Leone started his trilogy by taking a different direction with the same concepts. You know, we have the idea of a, well, let's be honest. Leone stole his first movie from Japanese movies, from Yojimbo, from Akira Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. That's known. He had to pay for it, (laughs) but you know, that's a known fact. But at the same time, he was taking the concept of the hero that is not necessarily the white hat, Roy Rogers, Tom Mix hero, but somebody who's a lot grittier and tougher, which at the same time works with the film noir, which had been going since the 30s, really, but had been growing stronger in the 50s, because the 50s started producing the uh, a lot more of the noir films okay. that, uh, you know, they're just the changing face of the world where... Uh, sometimes the guy who's the protagonist is not necessarily a good person. And um, at the same time, sometimes the bad guy is not necessarily as evil as he is some. So the experiment of form and character concepts were going on at the same time as the Spaghetti Western. And when Leone created The Man With No Name, 
he created a character who is both good and uh, tarnished at the same time is a better way of putting it. Where the character is doing good, but he's killing a lot of people to get there. And sometimes not necessarily in the right way. Okay. But that's a human factor. And that's good, too, because a, a character who is very good at what he does, but still can get beat up in the movie, make mistakes, you know, things like that. It, it, it created something different for the reader and the viewer uh, in time. And that's where... Uh, the changing face of cinema comes from when they just keep experimenting with concepts and sometimes it doesn't work. You know, I, I have always had an issue with these good vampires, for example, you know, it's like your vampires are eating people and killing people. They're not nice people. Stop doing this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's something uh, my good friend, Bill Segulin and I, uh, he has, his kids were watching these movies and they were surprised that the vampire was always getting killed. And we looked and said, well, you do know vampires kill people to live. <laughs> so it's like, you, you do know this, right? So they're not necessarily good people. So stop thinking of them that way. Think of them as what they are. <laughs> right. It, it's, a, it's a monster kid thing. And where I enjoy every Dracula movie, even the bad ones, uh, I'm not cheering for him to win. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's what the, the Spaghetti Western really is. It, it was an experiment with form and changing of styles to the point where the good guys and the bad guys sometimes had that grayness to them that uh, where one was only a little darker gray than the other was a little lighter gray, if you will, not necessarily black and white. And... That also started at the same time as the spy movies were starting to change, too, where the spy hero was sometimes not necessarily a good guy because the Cold War was going on. In the Cold War, you have the George Smiley's and the characters like that who were a little more realistic, but also a little nastier at times. So, I, I want to run some titles by you real quick, and just like a quick, like one or two sentence sum summary of what you feel about these movies, because okay. these are movies that are in the weird West spaghetti Western uh, Western meets horror subgenre, which is pretty small. Uh, <laughs> the Beast of Hollow Mountain, nineteen fifty six. Oh, so demented. <laughs> it's like, yeah? I'm watching that. It's like, oh, this is so weird. But I love it. It is so okay. much fun. It is fun. You know, don't take it seriously. Check your brain at the door, but you'll have a good ride. Okay. It's, it is a, a giant monster movie in the, in the uh, Southwest. Okay. Curse of the Undead, which is a, a universal film. Yes. Curse of the Undead was actually, for many years, one of my favorites, just because it was so different. Really? It, okay. Yeah, it was just it just like the idea that they were willing to try something a little different with the Universal. So I had a, a good. I, I like that movie. It's fun. It's not serious, but it's fun. Okay, uh, I'm gonna skip ahead to another giant monster. Well, kind of, sort of giant monster, not as big. The Valley of Guanji. Valley of Guanji is actually a decent movie. It's actually a fairly good movie, and it has good special effects for what it was, and. I actually enjoyed that movie for uh, a lot of reasons. There was some good, decent acting. Sometimes the reactions were very what I expect. You know, when something comes out of the ordinary, there's a Hollywood thing where people accept it too fast. 
this movie, they didn't accept it so quickly. When it did happen, they were kind of like, oh, what the hell is that? Okay. <laughs> All right. And then I want to wrap up with these two that were released kind of sort of as a double feature. 1966 saw the release of Billy the Kid versus Dracula and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> I knew it. A couple of low-budget affairs, but uh, yeah, what do well, you think? Well, first things first, you have John Carradine. Uh-huh. So you're automatically not in a bad place already. I mean, John Carradine, even drunk in that John Carradine, was so awesome. I've always been fascinated by Billy the Kid in the sense that he was pretty young when he lived and died and didn't really do anything particularly interesting in real life. Right. But this Billy the Kid looks like he was in his 40s. So I always, it's like this Billy the Kid, when Billy the Kid looks like he should be uh, carrying a full-time job, it doesn't really strike right with me. There's something <laughs> a little off when Billy the Kid is not a kid, but a, a full-grown adult. Right. (laughs) There's something there's something a little messed up there. You couldn't have gotten like a teen actor to play the part. It would have been a little more realistic in that sense. (laughs) You know, or somebody at least that looked young. I I understand that, you know, movies and T V have always hired people older for younger parts. I mean, I went to the Chiller Con recently and they had one of the actresses who was on Beverly Hills 90210, because it's a big convention just for signatures, and I don't really care about that too much. But I saw her there, and she's older than me, but uh, when I was working full-time and an adult, she was playing a high school kid. So yeah. I know there was something a little screwed up right there, but that's Hollywood. Yeah. As, for, yeah. as for Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter, that movie's just plain funny. It's just like, it's so silly, it's fun. I like that movie. I have a good time with it. it if you check your brain at the door, like I said earlier, it's, a good, it's, it's good for what it is. It's low budget. It's goofy as heck. And I'm pretty sure the Luchador movies probably took concepts from it. Because <laughs> they, they loved using odd versions of Frankenstein's family. And, uh, you know, they had a Frankenstein in one of the Luchador movies, who's uh, a, doc- a son of Frankenstein, whose name was Irving. Irving Frankenstein. Well, there is a name that strikes fear in the heart of... Uh-huh. Yeah, in the hearts of accountants <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Jesse James versus Frank, you know, Frankenstein's daughter. It, you know what you're working with before you get in the door. So just you know, no, to make true. fun of it, is, it's garbage. No, it's not garbage. It's just fun. Take it as fun and uh, you know, find, the, find the stuff in it and have a little bit of... Uh, fun with it don't don't sit there and make you know sneer because it's low budget it's fun you know i I had to to laugh because tcm turner classic movies of all places played billy the kid versus dracula i know i I, I dvr'd it (laughs) oh yeah me too i was like man it's on tcm i gotta see because you know it's it's out there you can get it on dvd pretty easily but i was hoping that maybe it was just a tiny bit cleaned up because you know they broadcast in hd i it's it's John Carradine doing what he does, and he's creepy. If you watch that movie, he's he's a bad dude because the the lust in his eyes as he's trying to seduce Billy the Kid's uh, fiance, it's it's pretty lecherous. It's pretty rough. Yeah, and um, and in a good way, in a good way, in a, way. No, I mean, in a way that makes yeah. it work for the movie. I mean, yeah. One of the interesting things about John Carradine was he was one of the few actors out there who 
could really throw himself into low-budget bad roles. I mean, he could throw himself drunkenly sometimes into these roles very well. And in that movie, when he when he's acting as Dracula, and he's not trying to be suave and debonair, you, you kind of see the predator underneath that he'd had in other versions of vampires. So I, I have good feelings about him in that movie. Definitely. And then uh, Jesse, like you said, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter is such an out there type movie. And you mentioned Luchador. I, I didn't even think about this, but these movies would fit right. At, it would be right at home. Yeah. as part of a Luchador movie, like as a, a mate or, or pairing as a Luchador double feature, you know, a Luchador movie. And then one of these movies just back to back. I totally could see it. Oh yes. It's the same thing. And you know, I've just, uh, I just have a feeling that somebody in Mexico saw it before they made one of these, one of the Luchador monster movies and said, yeah, that'll work. And did their own version of it. <laughs> that work. Yeah. What what is it about Frankenstein's descendants, specifically the female descendants, that make those movies so much more interesting? Because you run into it in one of the Santo films as well. Yeah, and I even wrote it in uh, The Triumph of Frankenstein. I had a version of yeah. Frankenstein's uh, descendant. I think what it is is because it gives the person who's writing the script or the book a chance to experiment with the concept of that. You see – Frankenstein from the book is very straightforward. You know, he's the monster, not the monster itself. Sure. That's what that is. Sure. In the first two Frankenstein movies with Universal, you had Colin Clive, and he was very hysterical all the time, which is more his personality is a person, I think, than it was acting. But he was always on edge and ready to lose it. Um. After that, every successive Frankenstein that we saw had a different concept, a personality, a person who's not involved. Wolf Frankenstein, who's intrigued only scientifically from the idea, and then goes a little off the rails after that. Mm-hmm. How the villagers let him live at the end of that movie, I'll still never know. But whatever. That's, <laughs> no, I didn't write it. But they let him live. Oh, I'm going to give you the castle. That's why you're going to let me live, I guess. After that, every doctor of Frankenstein descendant or just employee that followed, Dr. Niemann, all of them, it all came from the idea of the writer able to experiment with the different reasons behind it. You had Boris Karloff's character who was just playing twisted and wanted to do exactly like his mentor. Right. Uh, you had others that just wanted to see if they could bring back the life and they could change the world. When I wrote one, it was uh, – I had Herbert West and I had him dealing with the fact that he always said that uh, Frankenstein, his thing was he wanted to replace God, which I think was what more what Herbert West was talking about himself when he did that, mm-hmm. since Herbert West really is of the same concept. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and then I had in Triumph of Frankenstein, I had another descendant, and – this one was, had her own twisted morality and reason for doing her thing uh, that was totally different from the others. So it all comes down to that it gives the writer a chance to experiment, and you're not stuck with either Mary Shelley or Colin Clive, which are the two only people are only going to think about. Huh. Yeah? Okay. I, I do find it fascinating, so... You know, to hear your take on it, I think, kind of lines up with my own thoughts, just kind of put 
to words better because, well, you're a writer, an author that's been published, and yeah. Anyway, uh, as far well, as and, yeah. and you and you've run a podcast is what three fifty now. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you're going <laughs> to be know, in episode three hundred fifty two. So. <laughs> There, there you go. So, so you get the idea. I think you're all right with words yourself. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, listeners, Frank did appear in episode 352 of Monster Kid Radio, which came out uh, uh, the second week of January. So go back into the archives over there and check it out where he and I talk about our top three favorite vampire hunters from horror, classic horror, and a few other things. And it was a fun conversation. You can always find Frank on Monster Kid Radio. And he's always writing. He's always got new stories coming. Are there any other Westerns in the works outside of The Lone Ranger? I wrote another major Sabbath story uh, that takes place and involves um, a bunch of heroes and villains in the West. Uh, No weirdness to it, uh, except criminal weirdness. Uh, And that's it for now. Okay. Um, The closest I have, I did write a story that's supposed to come out in October. An original novel set in the 1800s in New York, but that's uh, more of the crazy variety. It's called the Satanic Gangs of New York. It's supposed to come out in October from Pro Se Productions. Okay. So you never know. Head over to Amazon and look up Frank Schildener. His last name is spelled S C H I L D I N E R. You're going to find a number of books by him, books that he's appeared in, and if you pay attention, books that will be coming up soon. The man is a writing machine, and I am so proud to consider him a friend. Frank, thanks for being part of the Pasta Primer this month. Special thanks to the band El Diablitos. They're a spaghetti western surf rock band based here in Portland, Oregon, and they gave me permission to use their music for the Pasta Primer series. The song you're hearing is La Danza de los Muertos, which is the third track on the album All Roads Lead to Hell. You can find them on Bandcamp at ldiablitos.bandcamp.com. That's E-L-D-I-A-B-L-I-T-O-S.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Let them know that you heard about them here on this podcast. My name is Derek M. Cook, and typically, I'm the guy that talks about monster movies. And you can hear that every week at Monster Kid Radio over at monsterkidradio.com. Net. Hello, everyone. This is Richard, the Monster Movie Kid, and it's time for another edition of the Kansas City Crypt. It's February, and there is that nasty little holiday this month called Valentine's Day. Uh, maybe not one of the more popular holidays amongst monster movie fans, but you know, there's a lot of famous monster couples in the history of classic horror films. And this month, I want to take a look at uh, some of the more popular ones. Now, I think we can go back as far as 1925 for one of the earliest, well, interesting couples, The Phantom and Christine, and the original Phantom of the Opera. Now, there's been a lot of editions of Phantom of the Opera over the years, and certainly there's been more romantic versions of the love story between The Phantom and Christine. That first one in 1925 wasn't exactly the most romantic, but you got to admit, the Phantom did have a, a love and affection for Christine. It just wasn't quite meant to be. And that was kind of the case in 1932's Island of Lost Souls. you got to see the, the love, the passion, the intensity that the Panther Woman had. She clearly had eyes for Edward Parker. 
and he was kind of interested too, until he realized that she, well, didn't start out life as a woman. I think one of the more sad, unrequited love stories of the day, or well, back then at least, 1932's The Mummy. Boris Karloff as the reincarnated Imhotep, and his love trying to bring back his long-lost Oxenomen. In modern days, she was known as Helen. It's really kind of sad. I mean, Imhotep, well, his tragic death and coming back to life and then trying to find his lost love. Now, granted, yeah, it's Boris Karloff and he's creepy as all heck at times, but, you know, it's kind of sad when you watch that movie. I think another sad case of unrequited love is in 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein, The Monster. Again, Boris Karloff. The monster just wants a mate. He's misunderstood. He wants to live a happy life, and well, people keep coming up and ruining that. And so a bride is created for him. What's the first thing she does when she sees him? <laughs> she screams. Oh, the poor monster. Well, he does what any well, self-respecting man would do. Pull that switch and blow up the castle. You know, I think an interesting love story is in 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. I mean, the creature, clearly not human, but clearly has an interest or an attraction of sorts in the very lovely Kay, played by Julie Adams. Now, clearly, she's not interested. It's a one-sided love story. It's very similar, at least in the premise being it's a creature and a woman of sorts, that we're seeing in the uh, more recent film, Shape of Water. Now, clearly, it's uh, a homage of sorts to Creature from the Black Lagoon, and it's uh, a very different love story, different circumstances, and certainly not unrequited. But it did definitely harken back to that original film, You know, the creature had other love interests, but I don't think he ever loved anyone quite as much as Kay, and uh, unfortunately he never did get the girl. Unrequited love is kind of a theme in these classic horror films. We could go on and on about so many uh, love stories and unrequited love. I think one of the more tragic ones takes place in 1944's House of Frankenstein. A case of unrequited love with the poor Daniel as played by J. Carol Nash. He clearly has eyes for Gypsy Girl Rita, and it seems that she is certainly interested in him. That's until, well, the unwanted uh, third party is involved, Lawrence Talbot. Yeah, Lon Chaney, he was definitely a charmer back then, even though he was quite, uh, well, depressed and a little bit of a neurotic case at that point as he's kind of battling that little uh, wolf man that's hiding inside of him. Rita didn't care at all, though. I always really felt for Daniel in that. He clearly had some love for young gypsy girl Rita, just wasn't returned. Now, of course, we got to talk about Count Dracula on this day of love. Uh, Do we? I don't know. Count Dracula may be one of the more charming characters, depending on which version you watch, but I'm not sure that uh, the Count and his brides or any of his victims really had a healthy relationship. I don't think his son, a.k.a. Lon Chaney Jr. and son of Dracula, was any better. 
Now, if we're talking classic horror, we have to talk about two couples who certainly were not Ren requited. They were two of the most romantic couples, I think, in all of classic horror. I'm talking about Morticia and Gomez Adams from the Adams family and Herman and Lillian Munster from the Munsters. I mean, both of these couples, yeah, there was some definite love. Now, Herman and Lillian I always looked at as a bit more of a goofy relationship. But Morticia and Gomez, yeah, there was a lot of passion there. All Morticia had to do was say a few words in French and Gomez would go crazy. I was always more of an Adams Family guy growing up, and I still am. Now, I love the Munsters, don't get me wrong, but there was just something about the Adams Family that I... I still enjoy. I think it's, uh, I don't know, Me TV or Antenna TV. I, I think one of those channels still plays the Adams Family on weekends, but at such odd times. However, I've got a DVD set, and every once in a while I'll stick a few episodes in. It always makes me smile. Now, we have to do an honorary mention for another couple. Now, technically, Classic Horror ends in 1968. By most accounts, when Night of the Living Dead came along. But... I would really be remiss if I didn't talk about Dr. Frankenstein and Inga from Young Frankenstein or Frankenstein, whatever. Yeah, I'm talking about the wonderful couple of Gene Wilder and Terry Garr. Yeah, that's a classic movie. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't be doing couples and monster movies justice if I didn't mention them. You know... Valentine's Day may not be the most logical day to stick in a monster movie, but I don't think you could do any better than sticking in The Bride of Frankenstein on this day and maybe a few episodes of The Addams Family. Until next month, this is Richard, the Monster Movie Kid, closing the door on another edition of the Kansas City Crypt. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Rich. And now it's that time you've all been waiting for, For Your Eyes Only, Chapter 11. To catch you up, last month, Ivan Bentonoff, he had made contact with his people, and they sent him somewhere. Little did he know, they were sending him back to Beef McCormick. And at the very end of the last chapter, he walked into that warehouse and saw Beef McCormick with his lady love Ingrid's dead body in his arms, and all heck was about to break loose. So without further ado, let's get into it. For Your Ice Only, Chapter 11 Beef McCormick could feel the vestigial muscles around his ears tense as the rusty hinges of the warehouse door strained to keep it functional. As he wept and cradled the lifeless form of his greatest love, nothing could prepare him for the sight of Ivan Bentinoff, his Soviet analog and would-be assassin, strolling, almost casually, into the abandoned storehouse. A raw, primordial outrage burned its way through every cell in Beef McCormick's body when Bentonoff's gaze locked onto his. For the smallest fraction of a second, the entirety of reality came to an abrupt halt, and there existed no sound, no movement, and no conscious thought. Just pure, unadulterated rage. Eventually, Beef's perceptions reset, and the world gradually wound toward normalcy, albeit seemingly in slow motion. A byproduct, no doubt, of the complex mix of stress hormones flooding through his cardiovascular system. A noticeably minute shift in the angle of Bentonoff's shoulder and Beef's eyes were instantly drawn to the revolver in the other man's grip. In the time it took Bentonoff to level his weapon at the man he had tried to kill just hours earlier, 
Beef McCormick had already assessed the situation and determined the best possible strategy for survival. And, like any good curling skip, Beef McCormick had also devised several plans B, should his A scenario not pan out. Beef McCormick was already rolling out of the way before Bentonoff was able to pull the trigger. A pair of slugs exploded in quick succession from the barrel of Bentonoff's gun, slicing through the air with a white-hot hiss. With resounding thumps, they slammed one-two into the mildew-infested concrete wall, missing their marks by several inches. Halfway through his perfectly executed somersault, Beef nabbed the pistol belonging to the phony doctor. Upon the flawless completion of Beef's gymnastic evasive maneuver, he found himself in a crouching position, his newly acquired firearm aimed squarely at Bentonoff's chest. A firm squeeze and the muzzle of Beef's gun spit flame, smoke, and noise. Ivan Bentonoff's legs churned like hell as he swiftly made his way to a small outcropping of wooden pallets and hundred-pound bags full of some unknown powdered industrial chemical. As Bentonoff flung himself behind the unevenly stacked mound, bullets whizzed past his head, with several embedding themselves deep into the sacks of caustic dust. Crouching as low as he could manage, Bentonoff held his breath in the hopes of avoiding the ever-expanding cloud of, more than likely, carcinogenic ash raining down upon his head. Burning with a righteous animosity, Beef McCormick continued to shoot until the handgun ran out of ammunition. Sensing an opening, Bentonoff poked his head out, fully intending to return fire. However, after noticing the Russian assault rifle in Beef's arms, he immediately returned to the relative safety behind the mountain of granulated cancer. A rapid burst of gunshots pulverized the front wall of Bentonoff's shelter. Round after deadly round smacked into the stack of bags, sending ever larger clumps of white powder into the atmosphere. Struggling against the ear-splitting blast of his machine gun, Beef funneled all of his emotions into a guttural, primal roar, which erupted from his throat like a mushroom cloud of aural fury. Focused on nothing more than ending his rival's life and, by extension, avenging Ingrid's death, Beef began moving toward Bentonoff's refuge, all while continuing to unload his weapon. A mere foot short of Bentonoff's hiding place, Beef's clip ran dry. Ivan Bentonoff quickly jumped to his feet and aimed his weapon. Beef having moved so close, Bentonoff never had the chance to squeeze the trigger. Instead, Beef swung his gun like a Louisville slugger and, upon connecting with Bentonoff's wrist, sent the man's pistol flying into a far corner. Ignoring the searing heat of the assault rifle's barrel, Bentonoff grabbed hold and yanked the weapon completely out of Beef McCormick's grip. Unfortunately for Bentonov, the awkward momentum of the motion of the rifle caused him to lose his footing and stumble back a step. Taking advantage, Beef advanced and rammed his boot into the other man's chest. The sheer force of Beef's kicks sent Bentonov onto his back and the assault rifle skittering across the floor. Beef took to the air, his feet locked tightly together, his intention to land squarely on Bentonov's chest in the hopes of fatally caving it in. Luckily for the man on the ground, Bentonoff was able to roll onto his stomach and out of the way of Beef's savage attack just in the nick of time. Determined to destroy his adversary, Beef stomped hard onto Bentonoff's calf muscle, the prone man yelling in severe pain. Dropping his knees onto the backs of Bentonoff's, Beef McCormick pinned his adversary to the ground before fiercely ramming his fist into the base of the other man's skull. Bentonoff's body went limp in response. Breathing heavily and shaking with bloodlust, Beef McCormick triumphantly returned to a standing position. Using his foot, he nudged Bentonoff's torpid frame, but received no reaction. 
Satisfied the man was completely unconscious, Beef took a deep breath and calmed his nerves before shuffling over to Pentonoff's involuntarily surrendered revolver. Upon picking it up, Beef was contented to find the weapon contained at least one bullet. Stealing himself for the gruesome job left to be done, he turned to face his Russian counterpart, only to find the man was nowhere to be found. Bentonoff! Beef bellowed into the rafters. The familiar groan of the warehouse door's hinges sent Beef into a full-speed dash toward the exit. As he left the building in a fevered huff, he visually scanned the surrounding area. Somewhere near a thicket of knotty evergreens, he thought he could vaguely perceive the shadow of a man half-limping, half-sprinting into the darkness. Throwing caution to the wind and simply assuming this was the person he was looking for, Beef emptied his weapon in the shadow's general direction. Sadly, he missed every shot. Exasperated to have let his enemy slip away, Beef McCormick angrily, though ineffectually, threw his head back and howled his irritated disappointment to the stars in the night sky. Good stuff, good stuff. Okay, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you contribute to the films of the Mimiverse currently in production. And keep paying attention to SaintEuphoria.com or Facebook or the Twitters or the Tweeters or the Insta Chats or the Snapgrams or, you know, whatever's out there. <laughs> I love saying that stuff. It makes me sound old. Lots of cool stuff is happening, and we will update you as much as is humanly possible. Thank you for listening. Don't forget what I always say. Be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, with your Mimiverse Joke of the Month. Since it's February and it's Valentine's Day this month, we're going to have a nice one about love. Kind of. A woman walks into a post office and she sees this well-dressed man standing at the counter and he's placing love stamps on bright pink envelopes with hearts all over them. And he seals each envelope and he sprays it with a puff of perfume. And he's doing this over and over and over again. And there's just a huge stack of these envelopes. And finally the woman can't, you know, can't stand it anymore. And she goes up to him and says, Why are you doing? And he goes, Well, I'm sending out a thousand Valentine cards signed, Guess Who? Why, she asks. And the man turns to her and looks a little embarrassed and says, Well, I'm a divorced lawyer and things have been a little slow. Make sure you come out to the Drexel Theater in Bexley, Ohio on February 3rd when we will be showing Demon with the Atomic Brain and you can tune in to us on Altspace VR virtual reality and that way you can see our show every friday at 10 30 we are currently wrapping up joshua kennedy's dracula ad 2015 so you have two ways to watch us our monthly show on the first saturday at the drexel theater and weekly show in vr at 10 30 on altspace vr Make sure you're there. Check us out at www.midnightmonstermovies.com. Mm-hmm.